Daniel 11.32 is a great Bible verse of promise and one of the themes of our ministry. It says, the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and we will accomplish exploits. That means we'll do the works of the Lord. And I hope the energy and the spirit of that verse describes your life and attitude. We can be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might to finish the works He's called us to do. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. We want our lives to be useful and to count for something, don't we? God is looking for strong believers who are not politically correct, but will be willing to pay the price to be biblically correct, and who will dare to stand with the God of Israel in these dangerous end times. That doesn't mean that we will approve of all of the policies of the secular nation of Israel, not by any means. But don't forget, Israel will not always be a secular nation. Zechariah chapter 12 says a great end-time revival is coming to Israel, and we must be determined to fight anti-Semitism while we watch the world making the same colossal Jew-hating mistakes that happened prior to World War II. Jesus chose us in this battle before we ever chose Him. The words of Jesus in John 15, 16 are so true. You did not choose me, he said, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. This verse is so true in my life. People ask me when I first became involved with Israel and also with the Arabs. God chose me for this and he put Israel in my heart in my childhood. I wouldn't come into contact with the Arabs, the half-brothers of the Jews, until I was nearly 30 years old. Like the Gentile matriarch Ruth in the Bible, the Jewish people became my people in my early childhood, not because of any genetics that I know of. Perhaps there's a Jewish connection somewhere on my family tree, but I can't prove it. The Jewish people simply became my people because of my earliest childhood experiences and my evangelical upbringing. One of my earliest childhood memories was when Jesus appeared to me as the King of the Jews. It was an open vision, and at that time he healed me of a serious childhood illness, rheumatic fever. He told me, you're going to be healed, and I was. He was wearing a biblical-style Middle Eastern robe and looked like an Israeli. And he wasn't the blonde, blue-eyed Jesus like you see in so many church portraits. He had dark, chocolate-brown eyes, the eyes of a Sabra. That's a native-born Israeli. And his eyes were deeply compassionate. This open vision of Jesus was a little scary for me in an awesome sense because I was young and shy. And when I looked again, he was gone. But the vision was forever printed on my memory banks. 
In the American state of Georgia, where I was born, I also recall a vision of my parents outside my bedroom window, working with bent-over backs in a large vegetable garden. Many years later, when I told this vision to my mother, she said that they never had a vegetable plot. They were always too busy running three country churches. So I believe the vision of my parents working in the field was a metaphor of their busy lives dedicated to the Lord's spiritual harvest fields. One of my earliest childhood memories was also a big picture book called the ABCs of the Bible, a very precious memory. A was for Abraham, B was for Bethlehem, and C was for Christ, and so forth. The biblical patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and David became like family to me because of my godly upbringing, and David was my hero. I was so proud of him for killing that evil giant Goliath. And so when I spent the night with my nanny, a godly lady who lived in a white southern house on a hill, instead of taking along a doll or a teddy bear, I always asked to sleep with the Bible open to an illustration of David holding his slingshot. Also, when I was young and impressionable, I watched a movie on TV about Jesus. I think the film was King of Kings, starring Jeffrey Hunter as Jesus. And I was heartbroken that Israel's national religious leaders had rejected Jesus. Of course, the crucifixion was God's sovereign, predetermined plan of salvation for the world. But after watching the movie, I was so concerned for the destiny of the Jewish people. And I was comforted by my father of blessed memory. I'll never forget his wisdom. He was a man of God, a moderator in his denomination, and he had always treated the Jews with respect and reverence. I asked him what was going to happen to the Jews. And thankfully, he didn't consign them to hell as so many churchmen have done in the past. He answered, the Jews are God's chosen people and their destiny is in God's hands. God's plan of salvation for the Jews will culminate at the end of the church age and after the rapture. My father was confident that the judge of all the earth will do right. Also, as I was growing up, God granted me many dreams about the rapture and the second coming of Jesus. After university, I enjoyed a skyrocketing career as a journalist, and my broadcaster husband became manager of the radio station of the theological seminary where he was a graduate. And so we started visiting the Holy Land in 1975. Like many believers visiting Israel for the first time, I felt like I'd come home. And this homecoming took me by surprise. I've visited many countries, but never felt like I'd come home. And so after much spiritual warfare, our family moved to Jerusalem in 1982 to open a TV news bureau for the Christian Broadcasting Network's 700 Club. And as we lived and worked in Israel, I was again taken by surprise by the extraordinary openness of the Arabs to the gospel. I not only loved the Jews, but now I love the Arabs too. And love has its own power. In those early days of running a news bureau in the 1980s, I began to evangelize amongst the Arabs, and they welcomed me with open arms. 
Back in America, I had never experienced such spiritual hunger and openness to the gospel. Happily, I was discovering it's the Muslim's harvest time. Having received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1977 on a trip around the world, I was full of energy and vision to win souls and to ask God for the nations, as Psalm 2 exhorts us to do. And the Arabs were supernaturally open. Dreams and visions were part of my ministry with them. And this Holy Spirit phenomena still continues to this day. In fact, the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully through the divine agencies of dreams and visions, as I've documented in my book, Miracles Among Muslims, the Jesus Visions. And so through evangelistic outreaches amongst Arabs, God taught me the bigger picture of his vision for the region. We experienced a movable feast month by month, holding many outreaches in places like Bethlehem, Jericho, Jerusalem's Old City, the Mount of Olives, and Arabic villages like Silwan near the Gihon Spring, and also near the City of David. Also in Nazareth and in Bedouin encampments, literally all over the country, we distributed thousands of Bibles and we prayed for the sick. We held open-air meetings in many other villages like Cana and Deborah of Galilee. We were invited into homes, restaurants, and hospitals to hold meetings and to pray for the sick. Our mandate in those years was the Lord's own words in Matthew 10, 23, where he said, Truly, truly, I tell you, you will not have finished going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I took this verse quite literally, believing that the work of evangelism won't be finished at the time of the rapture, but it will continue during the great tribulation period under the supernatural ministry of the two witnesses, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists and an angel flying in midair, all as the book of Revelation foretells. Well, I first learned to pray for the sick amongst the Arabs who are very open to the miraculous. The first healing miracle in my ministry was a Palestinian I had fasted and prayed for a sheikh who was also a hajj to be saved. And on the last day of the fast, he prayed to receive Jesus. He was miraculously healed of lung cancer and he was also delivered from smoking for the rest of his life. Hallelujah. The Lord began to send me on prayer assignments and preaching trips further afield into Egypt and into the surrounding Arabic nations where we had extraordinary favor to erect gospel tents and participate in revivals. Somewhere along the way, I discovered the amazing prophecies contained in Isaiah chapter 19 concerning a highway that God will build in the future, connecting the three most favored nations of Egypt, Israel, and Assyria. Of course, Egypt has existed from Bible days and Israel has been miraculously reconstituted since 1948. But Assyria is still arising. So let's watch that space. I felt compelled by the Lord on many occasions to prepare this highway of holiness as it's called in Isaiah 35. This preparation has been through prayer, evangelism, and prophetic acts of various team members through the decades.
The promise that God made to set the Jewish slaves free from Egypt now became his rhema word for our persecuted brethren in the Middle East, as well as for souls who are held captive behind the Jericho-like walls of radical religion. Let my people go that they may serve and worship the living God. Isaiah chapter 19 often comes into my conversations with Palestinians who are bewildered and frustrated by the return of the Jewish people to the region. But as I explain, God's vision of Isaiah 19's highway of peace, this truth makes sense to many of them. You see, God's vision is to make his capital, Jerusalem, to be the center of blessings in the midst of the earth. And we have been actively praying and interceding for Israel and the entire region now for more than 40 years. In fact, for 10 years straight in Jerusalem, we held specific monthly spiritual warfare prayer meetings for just one objective at the express command of the Lord. And that one mandate was to believe God for the irreversible overthrow of the powers of darkness that are holding a billion souls captive. It's no coincidence that Cairo's Evangelical Church also held revival prayer meetings for 10 years also. Prayer always precedes revival, so let's keep proclaiming the benediction of Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 25. It says, In that day there shall be a highway from Egypt and Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. We and other intercessors in this region are holding down the fort, as it were. We're standing in the gap, praying and believing God for the end-time revival prophesied by Zechariah 12.10, where God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplications, and they will look upon me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. I'm living in this verse. It's my spiritual address. To me, it's already a reality. But until Zechariah 12.10 actually manifests, the flame is burning in our ministry, even if it's a dimly flickering flame by comparison to the great second Pentecost that will be ignited in the near future. We call our Jerusalem Ministry Center David's Lamp because God promised always to have a lamp for David. That's a metaphor for Messiah in Jerusalem. Six times in the Word of God, the Lord promised Messiah's ancestor, King David, that David would always have a lamp in Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for lamp in these verses is near, which means a light or a candle. But in the English Bibles, near is also translated as lamp. I think this means that Messiah will always have a presence, a candle, to represent him in the city, even in the interim between the Lord's first and second comings. The name David is used sometimes interchangeably for Messiah. So God is saying Messiah will always have a light, a testimony in the city, even if presently the flame is our dimly burning wick. We in our ministry are a part of that preparatory flame. Every time you and I come to Jerusalem and participate in our prayer convocations, 
We're helping to fan the flame and keep it alive. As I said, God didn't make his promise of a flame in Jerusalem once or twice, but he promised six times to give Messiah a lamp in this holy city. Let's look at one example of one of these promises found in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 19. The Lord told David that he would always give him and his descendants a shining lamp. The same statement is expressed in Psalm 132 in verse 17. God promised that he would make the horn of David to bud and ordain a lamp for his Messiah. This prophecy was fulfilled when Messiah Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, was born to reestablish the Davidic dynasty. Yeshua is the lamp. Jesus became the light of the world, and he is the glory of his people Israel, as the prophet Simeon prophesied in Luke 2, 32. Well, I've often said that revival will come to the Middle East at least three ways. Number one, through divine intervention. God will intervene and shorten the days. Otherwise, the Bible says, mankind left to its own devices would become so destructive, especially with nuclear capability, that no flesh would be left. So God will intervene in human history and protect the destiny of Israel. Secondly, revival will come as a result of war. The future war prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not far away on God's prophetic timeline. And this miraculous war will surely bring about revival in Israel. The nation of Israel will be saved from another national holocaust. And this supernatural deliverance by God will trigger a national revival. The invasion of the mountains of Israel will involve Persia, which is modern day Iran, according to Ezekiel 38 and verse 5. But Israel's enemies will be defeated by God himself. And the third way revival will come will be through our intercession. So I want to spend the remaining of this program talking about the power of intercessory prayer because all revivals begin in prayer and intense intercession. Biblical intercessors are friends of God and intercession surely demonstrates our being a friend of God with intimate knowledge of his mind and what he once prayed. Isn't it amazing that God condescends to have friends among human beings? So I want to look for a few minutes at Genesis chapter 18. And in this chapter, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? You see, God planned to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their great wickedness. And Genesis 18 teaches us that God holds inquests into the moral conditions of cities. His verdict for Sodom and Gomorrah was that their cry was great. And you might ask, who was crying? Well, no doubt murders were rife in Sodom because God described their sin as grievous. So first of all, God heard the cry of blood. You see, Genesis 4.10 informs us that Abel's blood had a voice and his blood cried for vengeance after his murder. Likewise today, there is the cry of the blood of all the babies aborted on the altar of convenience. Their blood has a collective voice. And I have also heard the cry of the blood of the martyrs in the Middle East. Their blood has a cry. 
God also heard the cries as a result of rape and sexual immorality. Look, even the word sodomy stems from Sodom and Gomorrah. And Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, once said that if God doesn't judge America for its sexual sins, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Abraham's relative named Lot, no doubt, was also crying to God because the Bible says Lot was continually vexed by living amongst the perverse conditions there. Lot's predicament was a picture of Jesus's parable of the wheat growing amongst the weeds. So God told Abraham that the iniquity of the Sodomites was full and that he could no longer allow their abominations to continue unchecked without punishment. And God took counsel within the Godhead and asked, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And here God declared a principle that we learn in one of my favorite verses, Amos 3, 7, that surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. After all, sharing secrets is one of the special privileges of friendship. Sadly, if truth be known, we have very few friends that can actually be trusted with heartaches and secrets. But God was able to share his secrets with Abraham because he knew Abraham's character. And like a true friend, Abraham began to intercede ever so politely with God Almighty. Abraham asked, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Because we know that sometimes happens. The righteous can be in harm's way because of the deeds of the wicked. And that's why intercessory prayer is so vital. So Abraham interceded with God and he started out bargaining for mercy. If only 50 righteous persons could be found. And God said, yes, if 50 righteous persons could be found, he would spare the city. And notice how Abraham's prayer increased in boldness. Next, he asked if peradventure the city could be spared for the sake of just 45 righteous persons. And God said he would relent for 45 righteous persons. And then Abraham continued to negotiate with God. What about 40? And then he asked 30 or 20 righteous. And then Abraham got down to 10 righteous persons. And the bottom line was that a whole city would have been spared for the sake of 10 righteous men. The rabbis say that this number of 10 reflects a minion. That's a quorum of 10 men deemed necessary to conduct a proper prayer meeting. Although in his intercession, Abraham failed to save Sodom and Gomorrah, nevertheless, at least his nephew, a man named Lot, and Lot's two daughters miraculously escaped by angelic help. Lot's evacuation is one of the foreshadowings and pictures of the rapture of the church when God will remove in the future genuine believers before the time of wrath and destruction during the Great Tribulation. You see, Jesus warned in Luke 21, 36, be always watching and pray that you may be counted worthy to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. He also prophesied that when he returns for his completed church, conditions on earth will be similar to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Tragically, Lot's wife dragged her feet. She looked back and because she loved the things of this world, she was turned into a pillar of salt 
when God rained down fire and brimstone. Even today, when you visit the Holy Land, there's a pillar called Lot's wife at Mount Sodom, memorializing her folly on the salty shores of the Dead Sea. Abraham's pleadings with God in Genesis 18 is a lesson on intercession and encourages us to expect answers to our prayers that our loved ones will be saved. We must strive to have bold faith like Abraham and let's believe and declare before the Almighty a promise found in Acts 16.31, which declares, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Amen. I hope as a result of this program, you'll do three things today without delay. First of all, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I urgently invite you to receive him now in your heart by faith. Remember, this Bible teaches that Jesus died for us and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And he's returning soon according to these scriptures. So it's finally important that he becomes the number one person in your life, that he becomes the Lord of your life. Secondly, I encourage you to appropriate the healing power that's available in the gospel. Remember, we're not healed because we feel like it, but because God sent his word and healed us by the stripes and atonement of Jesus our Lord. And it's our duty to appropriate by faith the healing stripes of the Lord. This is the saving health of the gospel. Thirdly, I urge you to prepare for the soon return of the Lord. All the signs that Jesus gave us are converging and warning us that Jesus will soon return. So whatever you have to do to be ready, do it without delay. If you're, for example, in a wrong relationship, get out of it. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what you need to do to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. Amen. And if you have any questions or comments, it's easy to connect on social media. I also invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our weekly email and where you can watch all our videos or learn details about our next prayer convocation in the Holy Land. And please don't forget Download our free Jerusalem Channel app and subscribe to our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site. Thanks for watching and until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark, Maranatha, and Shalom. When you visit the Jerusalem Channel website, you can watch all our videos with closed caption subtitles. Select the closed caption logo at the bottom right corner of the video screen and select English. At our Jerusalem Channel Facebook page, you can select closed captions in English, Spanish, Portuguese, and Arabic. The Jerusalem Channel YouTube site has closed captions in English.